hello and welcome to Addiction Audio, the podcast from the journal Addiction. Uh, today I am joined by uh, Tori Horn, who is a doctoral candidate in clinical psychology at the University of Memphis. Tori is going to be here today talking about her recently published article, Does Acute Alcohol Consumption Increase Risk Taking While Gambling? A Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis. So uh, this study looked at the relationship between uh, gambling, risk-taking and alcohol. Um, I guess, why did you focus on these these three elements uh, and why are they important to study? Yeah, so um, all three of these are really are risk-taking behaviours at their core. And um, from what we do know in the literature, when people take risks or engage in one of these specific risk-taking behaviours, they're more likely to engage in another one. And so we were interested, um, especially given that in many casinos, alcohol is easily accessible, if not even freely provided to um, gambling patrons. Um, Given that that, those two things are happening together, we thought it would be pertinent to explore this relationship and how alcohol might affect someone while they're gambling. And in a sense, gambling is a risk-taking, a form of risk-taking. And so we expanded that to include some risk-taking tasks as well that had a sort of gambling component to them. I mean, it, it, it makes sense to me. And I, and I think that the results were, were fascinating without, without trying to give too much away too early on. Um, but one of the things that you mentioned, which I found really interesting in, the, uh, in your background section, was that you say that, uh, that there are many potential moderators to this relationship between alcohol and, and risk-taking and gambling. Um, and I guess that's particularly relevant in kind of complex situations like casinos. But can you talk a bit about what some of those moderators um, might be? Sure. So some of those moderators might have been things like blood alcohol concentration. Um, we had thought perhaps that um, that BAC levels at varying BAC levels, someone might um, act differently. So that was a potential one. We also had explored um, gender as a potential moderator. Um, and the type of task being used, there were so many like different study designs, um, the amount of time that the researchers waited for the participants to absorb their, the alcohol into their system. There were, there were several, but those were just a few. It's, it's one of those slightly frustrating things about systematic reviews and meta-analyses is that, is that you kind of get what you're given you know you get the studies that are there you don't you don't get to determine how they're how they're set up and how they're run um so so on, on your methods um in this systematic review method so to get a bit methodsy for a for a few moments um you, i mean you started off with with over 30,000 articles to to screen uh, how long how long did this take a very long time and a lot of a lot of help from my research team of undergrads and uh, other graduate students that I could not have, I could not have done this without them. Um, in looking at other people's systematic reviews, I know that's even 30,000 is even more substantial than some others, but it took me, it took me a long time. I want to say a couple of months just to get through the screening process. It's always reassuring to know that you've, you've kind of picked out everything when you have such a, such a wide net. Um, so certainly a, certainly a worthwhile endeavour, but uh, there, there was a part of me that gulped when I saw how many articles you started off with, I must say. Um, uh, you also, you say, for people who aren't familiar with meta-analyses, you said you, you used comprehensive meta-analysis uh, software. 
uh, version 3.3.070 for the uh, for people uh, for whom that might resonate. So how does that software work? Um, uh, do you do you extract data directly into the software? Um, how how do you use that kind of meta analysis software? Yeah. So um, first, you have to um, get a paid subscription through um, the comprehensive meta analysis website. Download software, but once it's once you open the software, you kind of enter things. It, it almost looks like an Excel sheet if you're familiar with a Microsoft Excel document. Um, and what you do is you, the program kind of walks you through it. It has uh, what Microsoft Word even calls a wizard, like the thing that guides you through the steps. And so it'll tell you to, you know, here, enter your study ID in this column. And now what kind of data did you get from that article? If it's a like mean and standard deviation, then it'll have specific spaces for you to put those in. And it'll even calculate effect size for you, which is what the method that I took. I took means and standard deviations as available in the articles I chose, and then entered those into comprehensive meta-analysis software and had it automatically calculate the um, effect size value for me. In the effect size value, you used Hedge's G values. Um, can you say a bit about what that is and why that was appropriate for, for this study? Yeah, so I used Hedge's G values, which is just one of the many measures of effect size. I chose Hedge's G because several of my samples or the studies that I included used very small samples of maybe 12 to 15 people. And when you have study samples that range in such a way from like 12 to over 200 participants, there's a lot of variability in that. And Hedges G can help um, adjust for that and take that into consideration. Last thing, just on the kind of uh, slightly methodsy section. Um, so within the studies that you had, looking at their methods... Uh, there were several different tests that people did to to measure the association between uh, alcohol and um, and risk taking. And I, I've I've visited a couple of the couple of these labs set within universities that are made up to be like like pubs or whatever. And I think it's fascinating how that environment plays a part. Um, and you mentioned like the BART task or the Lane risk taking test or the Iowa gambling task. Uh, can you give us a kind of brief overview of what kind of tasks people were given to measure uh, that association between alcohol and risk-taking? Sure. So I know for the balloon analog risk-taking task, it's one where a participant is typically seated at a computer and they are supposed to press a key on the keyboard to inflate this balloon. And every time they inflate the balloon and it doesn't blow up, they get money. And once it gets to a point, if it blows up, they lose all their money. So that was one reason that was included because it does have that gambling-like component to it. Um, then there was the lane risk-taking task, which also had a monetary component to it. It was more, um, there was like risky choices and less risky choices that participants could make. And so risk-taking is measured by the number of risky choices someone makes or the number of risky bets in a sense that someone might place, um, especially when that task is used with a like monetary value in mind for each of the choices. Um, so yeah, for the most part, these tasks, I think even including the Iowa gambling task, they're all kind of seated at a computer. Whereas the electronic gambling tasks, it depends. So sometimes participants are seated at a computer to perform the task and other times they are in a 
um, room that's made up to look like a casino with like a computerized like slot machine looking like a computer programmed to uh, act like a slot machine. So it just it varied a lot between the studies. Fantastic! It's a, it's such a fascinating area. So um, getting into the getting into the findings, uh, I, you know. I don't want to spoil the surprise for anyone in the paper, but uh, you you found that there there wasn't an association with with alcohol and uh, and risk taking in gambling, which to me seems slightly counterintuitive. I would assume that if, you know, if people drank alcohol, they might take greater and greater risks. So I know it's an odd question to ask why you think there something doesn't exist, but but why do you think there wasn't that association? That's a great question. Um, that was something that myself and my research team talked about quite a lot because we were a little thrown off too. Um, it really seems to be related to one of our biggest findings, which was a substantial difference between the alcohol and placebo comparisons and the alcohol and control comparisons. So for the alcohol and placebo comparisons, people in those two groups performed very similarly on risk-taking tasks. So they took similar amounts of risk as each other. Whereas in the, when we compared alcohol, um, people who had consumed alcohol to people who had consumed like juice, these non-alcoholic control beverages, we realized that the people in those, the alcohol condition exhibited greater risk-taking compared to those who didn't drink, who had that like juice or, you know, soda, water, whatever. Um, And in that, we thought perhaps that in what's influencing this is the expectancies. And the vast majority of the studies included use of placebo design. So the placebo was the control condition, meaning a vast majority of these studies that found no difference compared alcohol to a placebo condition. And the studies that tended to find a difference compared alcohol to a control condition, which led us to conclude, well, maybe people are expecting once they realize they're told they're consuming alcohol, their behavior is going to be different than someone who knows that they're not drinking. So so to a sense, there was a a kind of placebo effect on increased risk taking. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's the placebo effect itself is is kind of mystifying at the best of times. But but to have something so complex um, come out of uh, out of a placebo is is really is really interesting. you also mentioned about different levels of intoxication. Was this something that you were able to kind of tease apart in your data about, you know, whether people were kind of severely intoxicated compared with people who were perhaps less intoxicated? Unfortunately, no, we were not able to look into that um, because because we had um, the studies that we used to have such a limited BAC range compared to other literatures that explore the effects of alcohol on various behaviors that Really, there we didn't find an effect um, of like BAC as a significant moderator. It it seemed to not really do anything to this relationship at all, um, and we suspect that it might just be that maybe the BAC levels that have been targeted in these in this literature is just too limited, and perhaps our findings might look different if researchers conducted a similar experimental design but with a BAC of like 0.04 or lower like in that low range and it, what we don't know what would happen either if someone conducted an experiment with a BAC higher than 0.09 so those that could lead to differing results 
there's plenty of research yet yet to be done. You mentioned about uh, a kind of a cyclical or a kind of a reciprocal relationship with alcohol and, and gambling, whereby um, you weren't sure about the relationship between things like near misses or wins or losses, and perhaps that those elements of gambling might influence alcohol, which in turn might then influence gambling. So that is one of the, I think it's one of the areas we propose as a future direction, even because we know that it might influence someone's likelihood of consuming alcohol in that context um, from our work with um, people with gambling disorder. So um, it would be interesting, though, to see how those things might influence some, whether someone would um, drink, stop drinking, keep drinking, etc. A couple of final questions. What are the implications for uh like treatment services if you're if you're working with people who both drink and gamble are are there implications that actually maybe uh, addressing alcohol concurrently with gambling isn't as as important as perhaps you might have thought from this paper it's really difficult to draw any sort of conclusions that we might offer for um how to approach treatment of gambling disorder um i think there's still a lot of research to be done in this area before we can draw any sort of firm conclusions regarding um, treatment implications. Um, Just because there's still so many unanswered questions, like how does context influence this? Like these are all laboratory designs. So we are not even sure if this this, uh, pattern we saw here might replicate or be similar to that in naturalistic settings, or if people are self-reporting their gambling and their alcohol use, we're not sure if we might find the same thing, which is actually something we're working on in our lab currently is looking at um, that relationship in people who uh, gamble weekly. So that might, we might have some research coming up that will shed some light there. Um, I also think that we just like, we just really aren't sure what this role of expectancies plays either. Um, We know that, Clearly, this paper suggests that there's something going on there with people's expectancies. And so we're going to, we're taking, we're starting um, to take steps to do a study looking at how um, people who gamble frequently might expect various substances to impact their gambling behavior. And so that, those are what we are, the directions are currently headed in to answer some of these questions that remained after we did the meta-analysis. But until we have maybe those sorts of questions answered, it's really difficult to pinpoint any sort of implications regarding treatment. That makes sense. So are the studies that you're working on now, are they uh, are they looking at, uh, at risk-taking and gambling in naturalistic settings, in actual kind of gambling uh, settings rather than lab-based ones? Yes, in a sense. So it's all, I'll be, to be clear, it's all self-report data um, because it's very difficult to go into a casino and observe people's behavior. Um, so we have asked people to self-report their gambling behaviors and whether they drink while they're gambling and then how many drinks they consume while they're gambling. And so we're trying to look at sort of the gambling behavior differences, if there are any, between those who drink and gamble at the same time and those who do not. Uh, fascinating. Um, are you, and are you, is, is, is that what you're working on at the moment? Are there any other, any other bits of work that you're uh, you're focusing on 
Well, that study, and then uh, as I mentioned before, the um, how people's expectations might influence their gambling behavior, specifically how people who gamble may expect various substances to impact their gambling behavior. So like in our lab, we're working to look at of those substances, we're specifically really focused on alcohol and cannabis at the moment. Fantastic. Uh, well, I look forward to reading uh, those research papers when they come out. Um, until then, Tori Horn, uh, thank you so much for your time. Thank you.